Lindsay Smith is the Michigan radio reporter who detailed exactly what happened in Flint leading up to that city's water crisis. Her hour-long documentary, Not Safe to Drink, won a national Edward R. Murrow Award and many other honors. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with investigative reporter Lindsay Smith. Founded on the principle, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That all men are created equal. Lindsay Smith is Michigan Radio's investigative reporter. Her 2015 documentary about the Flint water crisis, Not Safe to Drink, won the station a number of very big national awards, including the Edward R. Murrow Award, an Alfred Alfred DuPont Columbia University Award, and a Third Coast Richard Driehaus Award. If you were here in Michigan as the uh, water crisis unfolded, Lindsay's name is not unfamiliar to you. I can't think of many more journalists whose work was more critical in unearthing what was going on and then chronicling, you know, this this prolonged response to to the tragedy, the 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 slow pace at which the state <clears throat> actually got involved to do things, the, the consequences that unfolded for the people who live uh, in Flint and now of course today, uh, we still have these, uh, these lingering issues. Lindsay was at the center of all of that. Tell us how you learned that something was wrong with the water in Flint and how you decided uh, to start reporting about it. So the first time I, I learned about the crisis or I felt like I did some of my own reporting about it was in January of 2015. So it was about nine months or so after the switch. Our newsroom is, we have a base in Ann Arbor, but we also have a bureau in Grand Rapids in Flint and Detroit. And so I was out in West Michigan and I just Skype into the news meeting every day at nine o'clock in my pajamas mostly, you know, and I just have my face there. Um, and so we had a reporter in Flint who reported about the Flint, uh, the switch, about the emergency manager takeover. Um, a lot of, like, right away, there was people showing up with jugs of gross water. And he was, like, filing stuff on that pretty, I mean, semi-regularly. I mean, you know, it's news the first couple of times, but then after a while, and everybody says safe, like, I definitely this coverage kind of died down. And then GM switched off of the water. So I knew about that. But... The first thing I really reported on was U of M Flint's campus did some water tests that they were looking for, um, something that was not lead, a byproduct of too much chlorine. And in those tests, they found really high lead. And we reported on that, but I didn't, but we didn't, we didn't get it yet. But that was the first time I, I remember reporting on that specifically. And then the significant thing that happened was, at least as far as, for me, the moment that I realized is um, in July of 2015 when Kurt Guyette at the ACLU got a hold of a memo that the EPA a worker in Chicago had, had written an internal memo that really outlined it was a lot of red flags about this one woman's house in Flint. And basically he was saying, if this is happening in this one woman's house, this is happening all over Flint. And I remember reading that. It was like a 4th of July weekend or like holiday weekend. 
And I remember saying like, oh my God, if this is, if this is true, that's really, that's like, that's a really big deal. But the EPA wouldn't talk. The city wouldn't really talk. They didn't really know what was going on. So then we called the state um, and, and tried to kind of nail down whatever we could from there. So I think that's, that's I mean, 2015 was really the first time that I picked up anything. Yeah. Uh, and did you imagine at that point that it would sort of balloon to the point that it did, that it would be this story that would unfold over several years uh, and, and take you guys to all of the all of the work that you did? No, I no, I don't think that we did. I mean, so my frame of a little bit of my my frame coming into this particular emergency manager thing, I saw it as just another example of emergency managers gone bad. So in West Michigan, I first initially covered Benton Harbor, the city. And when Rick Snyder passed PA4, when he took office, um, you know, people were protesting down there like crazy. They, there was all kinds of things that were happening in the city. And like after a while, like nobody cares. And it just kind of goes away. And to the and so the same thing happened with Muskegon Heights Public Schools. Um, the school board, the locally elected school board said, we can't, we're running out of money. We can't even afford a superintendent. We want an emergency manager. The emergency manager came in, laid everybody off hired a, a for-profit charter school company to run the entire district top to bottom. It didn't go great. And again, like it just nobody, it like nobody cared <laughs> or just like, you know, it just didn't pick up steam. So I think when I saw what was going on in Flint, I, I really looked at it as like, okay, they're building this new pipe. They're going to have water from Lake Huron again in what, a year and a half at the time, right? We thought it would get done by then. Like, they're just going to try to ride this out until they get the new pipeline, and then it'll be fine, and like, whatever. That's really what I felt like what was going to happen. Um, so I had no idea, though, the kinds of cover-ups and, like, fudging of numbers and um, ignoring obvious health risks that was going on at the time. Yeah. So... There, it was like move, it, to me. It was like moving the Titanic. It was like, oh, we're gonna switch back. We can't do that. You know, it didn't seem possible. And, and walk us through as a reporter how you uh, how you deal with uh, the, the 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 particular response here, which, um, as you point out, was to say, well, this is not as big a deal as maybe you're making it, or this is not as big a deal as people think it is, uh, or to cover things up and to lie. Uh, about what's happening. I mean, as a journalist, how do you push through to get to the truth? Well, we got really lucky that they put so much stuff in emails. And we got lucky that they put raw data in emails. And we also got lucky that we had scientists and medical professionals who could do something, make something of that data, right? Like, I... I could have never put together what a 90th percentile was before. I'm just not, I'm a political science major. I do not do that stuff. But now I know more about lead and copper than you could ever <laughs> want to know about it. Um, you know, I think the other thing was knowing this, like I said, because I had this context, 
I really looked at this as an emergency manager problem. And so I knew that Treasury Department folks that were really in control. Um, and I've, and I, I think if I did anything, I really tried to push that to say, you know, to make this obvious that this was done for money and that you had a state checks and balance situation where, you know, had the city of Flint applied to switch to the Flint River instead of a state-appointed emergency manager applying to a state department to get approval um, in kind of a sweetheart deal, I, I don't think the DEQ would have been as willing to support something like that that Flint would have put together. Just a guess. I don't, you know, I just... I, th I think that there's a loss of checks and balances there, and I had seen it happen in other communities. So when I talk about shifting the Titanic, you know, it was clear that if they weren't using the corrosion control, that this lead was getting out, it was already showing an increase in kids, and they had another year before they were going to get that pipeline ready. And it was people like Mona, Dr. Mona, and Mark Edwards, and some others who kept pushing really us with the backing to say like, no, it's all here. The data is here. This has been done before in Washington, D.C. People were poisoned. You, you, you have got to scream it from the rooftops. This brought you into contact with a lot of the people in Flint as well who were dealing with what had happened. Talk about the things that you saw and the things you learned from the families who were affected. It's a really, it's like, you know, when you lose your power for like, you know, 24, 36 hours, say, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I have to do this or I have to do this this way. Like you can figure it out, you can live. But it's, um, for some people, it's way more stressful than others. I think their sense of normalcy and, you know, depending on what your background is, that being able to trust what comes out of your tap or what health officials are telling you, when you take that, it, it's like it rips the foundation away um, from a lot of people individually. And then as a community, it can make you really cynical. In a community, it's sometimes, you know, a community that already has some skepticism, right, of the system and how they were treated in the first place. So, um, you know, some of these people that, like, especially after the crisis, when the solution was, you know, um, going around and putting filters, faucet filters on people's um, homes. I hung out with these teams of residents that would go door to door um, and going into people's kitchens and like, you know, you, you just sort of get a feel for like, this person has so much stuff on their plate. They, they haven't changed this filter since they got it four months ago. It's definitely no good anymore. It's like disgusting in there. And then there's like other people that you walk in the house and you know, there's clearly like major infestations and like kitchens that are falling apart. And you're like, well, you've got to change your filter twice a week or whatever it is. It just seems so, it, it's, it's, it's very difficult to like relay the disconnect or sort of the, the lack of resources and how challenging it can be to have something as basic as water and not be able to trust it. Uh, talk about trying to unearth those stories for your reporting. How do you get people in those situations to trust you when they're already not trusting uh, government officials who've lied to them, who've not done their jobs? Uh, how do you win that, uh, that faith from them? 
Um, I try to be as transparent as possible. I always am with all my sources, no surprises. You will know before anybody else knows what I'm doing, you know, how I'm handling things, where I'm at with my process. Um, I spent, the, the main person that we filed for the documentary was Leanne Walters because she was the house that was documented by the EPA. And she is in, in many ways the canary in the coal mine. And I think being able to spend, I mean, I spent so much time with that woman. So <laughs> I think that's the other thing is just being able to spend time, not being in a hurry, um, hanging out, getting your kid. I mean, I love her kids. They're so adorable. <laughs> and they really like me too now. So um, I think that, I mean, that's my biggest way that I keep trust. Yeah. But it's still, I would still say it's difficult. Um, and every event that we have, we actually, we're actually having a, an event there right now. Um, in Flint, and it's always like it's this dance. If you want to include people, you want to be inclusive, um, and not um, what's the word I'm looking for? Exploitive. You know, um, I wanted people to feel ownership of their own story mm. and what was important to them. And a lot of it has to do with like what they believe or not. I mean, some people don't believe the science anymore. So if you put facts in front of them or science, and they say. You know, sorry, I don't trust that. You, I, I have to accept them for, you know what I'm saying? Like, I can't be like, well, you know, um, and give them a lecture about it. Um, just trying to understand where they're coming from so we can maybe bridge some of those gaps. Hey, tell us more about Leanne Walters for people who maybe have not heard all of the, all of the reports. Yeah, so Leanne Walters is just an amazing mama bear. She, um, she, you know, she's, I don't know, it's hard to describe her. She's very headstrong. She's, um, she's, she was fired from a job once for like an elderly care thing for um, calling, it out, calling out abuse. And she was reporting too many people, too many of her coworkers and stuff, I guess. So she finds these ways, like she just is like, nah, this is who I am and I tell the truth. I don't get over it. Um, so she started showing up at the city council meetings with these and there's all these infamous photos of her with her brown water jugs um, and her tongue ring and her, you know, and she's got like blue hair half the time. She's, um, and she's not going to go quietly. She kept calling them. Um, she had, her kids had all kinds of skin problems. One has a, she has twins, so she has an immunodeficient, um, uh, he had some problems already health-wise. And he was suffering more than her, than his twin, than his twin brother. So to her, it was like fairly obvious that one twin was not doing well over this period of time. And um, she called the city, got her water tested. It came back at 100 and, I don't want to say 115 parts per billion, which is, you know, zero is considered safe. You don't, I mean, there's no level that is acceptable. They say 15 parts per billion, that is a treatment standard, that is not a health standard. So, um, and it's a community standard, it's not for like your house. So you really don't want to have blood in your water at all. So 115 was like really, really high and the guys, the city guys told her, I, we've never seen this before in the city. Um, don't give it to your kids. And so they got it retested um, just to make sure it wasn't a fluke test and it came back at 350 parts per billion, even higher. So Mama Bear wasn't happy, and then they ended up shutting off her water, putting a garden hose to her neighbor's house, stringing it into her window to give her access to water. 
I don't, I, yeah. And she's still, that's not going to shut her up. Um, so she started researching late at night uh, what chemicals the city was putting in the water. And she's researching all this stuff about corrosion. And she's the one that figured out that the city was not using phosphate, orthophosphates in the water. And she is the one who told the EPA that. So the state environment department basically told her, um, or well, they told the EPA, of course they're treating the water. Um, And so he believed him. So he went down to her house, the EPA guy from Chicago, and checked to make sure plumbing wasn't in her house. It turns out she had totally replaced all of the plumbing in her house, so she didn't have old plumbing. And they got even higher lead results, 1,500 parts per billion. It's just like it kept getting worse. So they ended up ripping out the lead service line, this lead pipe that went, usually it goes right in front of your house, right, or to the side. Well, for hers, it was something weird about the city. It went all the way down the block. So she had this super long service. As newsrooms across the country close their doors, independent and unbiased journalism is more crucial than ever. We rely on you just like you rely on us. This spring fundraiser, join us in protecting public media. Your support keeps us thriving. Invest in WDET's next chapter at WDET.org or tap donate in our mobile app. And it was all lead. So um, so that's how she became the canary in the coal mine. And she didn't back down. Um, you know, she got that memo from the EPA and was basically like, I'm going to start telling reporters. And he was like, if you must, okay. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, Miguel's a great guy. Um, but I don't think he was prepared to be called the rogue EPA person and be really sequestered internally. I didn't get to talk to him for six months before they let any reporters talk to him after the crisis, after that memo came out. So, yeah, so she's been just a pretty unstoppable force. Yeah. yeah. Um, you said earlier that um, for you initially, this was uh, a case of you know emergency management gone bad and, and looked like something you'd seen in some other communities. Um, but we also here have these two environmental uh, agencies, governmental agencies, who were supposed to, even under yeah. uh, emergency management, perform their duties competently. The EPA and the DEQ. Uh, in a lot of your reporting, I feel like you kind of unearthed the ways in which they did not do their jobs. Uh, talk about the failures at, at that level. Yeah, sure, it gets a little technical, but basically, I mean, like I said, I I wanted, I was like prepared for this to be like money, a story about money. And, and there may still be, I mean, obviously the criminal investigations are still going on. There may be money aspects that have not been uncovered yet. But what I decided through the reporting and what the focus of Not Safe to Drink, the documentary, ended up being about was about the failure of the EPA and specifically of the DEQ. Because if they had done their job correctly, then the water crisis wouldn't have happened, I think. Being... So even after the emergency manager makes this decision, you feel like EPA and DEQ had an opportunity to catch it. Well, I think they stopped. could have initially probably stopped the Flint 
switch to the river without, I mean, the city employees, you know, the head water manager has said, he was saying, we are not ready. You will start this plant over my objections. So there was your first failure, right? And and secondly, there's some technical failures that they didn't follow um, having to do with testing the water before you make the switch. Um, at the time, the PIO for the, or the, the like spokesperson for the DQ was telling me, you know, it's like a cookie recipe. You don't know how much sugar and chocolate chips to put in until you bake them or something like that. Like that's a quote I got once. That's not how I bake cookies. Oh man, dude. I was like, huh? Um, but, but so anyway, the EPA has made it much more clear since Flint that if you are going to make a switch like this from a giant body of water that's a pretty consistent source and you are using chemicals to prevent leaching and you switch to a different source, even if it is, say, a Lake Michigan, you still need to run tests and do loop tests on pipes so that you make sure you know what your recipe is before you switch. DEQ had argued that they had a period of time once they made the switch to make that recipe or like make it work by a certain deadline. And that's what I mean by like, I think they would have just rode it out as long as they could to get them back to on the, the other water. Yeah. Oh. Uh, do you feel like um, since then? Well, oh, and that, yeah, and ahead. they dropped water tests that they shouldn't have, which was a big deal. Like Leon Waters, uh, high results, they wiped them off of the, of the water quality, like the calculation, the 90th percentile. So... They had, they didn't get enough samples. They were supposed to collect 100 samples. They didn't get 100 samples. Well, so then the DEQ said, well, actually, you only have 99,000 people. You don't need 100 samples. You only need 60. So you're good. So they got 60, and, but they had a few that were too high. And so they looked at them and they were like, well, you know, this one is a business. Technically, that's not, you're not supposed to test businesses for this calculation. So they dropped that one, even though it was high. And then the other one they dropped was Leanne's because they said she had a filter, which is so counterintuitive. It like defies, you know, kind of common sense. But the reason they try to do that is because they don't want, they want the worst case scenario sample. So you don't want to have somebody with a filter taking your samples, but she had disconnected the filter and it wasn't even a lead filter. It was like one of those whole house, um, like osmosis -y type yeah. or something like that. Anyway, that was another like major problem. And I think that there are lots of ways that water systems can get around these tests. And DEQ has pushed um, for Michigan to get the highest uh, lead standards in the country, which we now have. This summer is going to be a hugely important summer for that because this is the summer that what's called something called the fifth leader kicks in. Essentially, the way they're testing water at homes that have lead service lines out in the front, they'll be looking for the water that was sitting in the service line instead of what was just sitting in the sink in, when you first open the tap. Mm. Um, so I think we'll have a better idea of how bad the lead is in some communities in Michigan because, not because they have worse water, but because we will be testing for it and We've looking for it better. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 
that's a great segue to my next question, which is whether you think we have fixed the errors that caused EPA and DEQ to fail in, in Flint. I mean, have we done enough to make sure that <clears throat> this kind of thing couldn't really happen again? I think that, I mean, if the DEQ had followed the existing lead and copper rule, I, I don't think it would have happened nearly as bad. Um, the fact that we've made it more stringent on, on municipalities, um, I think is going to be really important. Um, the holes that I see are still in schools, daycares, uh, you know, facilities with uh, the elderly people. Um, you know, it, it, can, it, tends, it tends to cause increase in, in blood pressure in some instances. She talks about this in the book. Um, so I've met people that have had like a eye problems and that kind of thing from high blood pressure, or just spikes, that kind of thing. So I just, I think it can go unreported and especially in like smaller communities, older communities. I really think anybody that, first of all, find out if you have lead in your pipes. Um, and then second of all, if you have it, I highly recommend getting a filter just because you never know when it will release. It's basically like a little... A little time bomb in there, you know, those flakes can come off even if you are treating your water properly. Um, even if you get one test back that says you're good to go, if that's in the ground, like I wouldn't be feeding my infants that for sure. So, so they are replacing the lead lines yeah. in Flint. Some other communities have said they're interested in doing well, that. Well, and the, the state has now, say, as part of the new yeah. rule, says you have to. But you you have, have communities who are saying, sure, it's going to be expensive. It's too expensive. You it will take time. Five yeah. communities sue the state to try, yeah. to, right. to, try to get out of, of that. Is that the only fix? Is that the only way to really be sure that, uh, that there isn't the potential for lead? I think, I mean, I think if you're talking about lead in drinking water, getting rid of those lead service lines are a huge part of the equation. Um, and getting the money and the time, the resources to do that is going to be big. Yes, there is lead in plumbing, lead in solder. Uh, up until 20, I want to say 14, you could still have some lead in faucets that were meant for drinking water. Even sometimes saying lead-free, they weren't actually lead-free, brass pipes and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I think it'll linger on, but those, to me, it's, it, it's such just that pure lead pipe that's sitting in the ground is just, as long as it's there, the potential for the treatment to be wrong or the water temperature or another thing that can really cause problems is physical disturbances. So if they tear up your road... Um, you know, and all those jackhammers or whatever, like it, it loosens up lead particles, shakes lead right? It shakes it off, right? And if you don't have a filter, you know, um, and you're mixing juice and you don't see it, I don't, you know what I'm saying? The other thing is, like, you can see little flakes, but uh, soluble lead in water you can't see or taste or smell at all. Yeah, um, yeah you know, I wonder sometimes whether the smart thing might just be for all of us to use filters all the time in our houses, which is not filters a have their role, own right? uh, set of bacterial problems. You do have to change them regularly, right, and right. Um, you know not everybody has. You know, there's there's can be problems Expense, with that. Right? Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and other kind of barriers, language barriers, and physical you know physical barriers. Um, some people don't have sinks that work right, or if you have a Brita filter and it's too heavy. I, you know what I'm saying? There's an endless array <laughs> of things. So I do think it is sort of it has. Be, I mean, in the state is saying the municipalities 
used to say, well, we're not responsible for this part of the pipe that's on private property. Um, we will take care of our portion of the pipe. The state in the research has backed this up that replacing part of the pipe makes it worse because you're disturbing that line. You're trying to reconnect new copper to old lead and there's some kind of metallurgy there that I do not understand, but it makes it worse. It's not great. And um, so a lot of cities take out their portion and go, we did our part, but in the meantime, it's actually made it worse. Um, so it's it's been on property owners to do that. The state has come down and said it's on municipalities and that's not yet been settled in court. Mm. And then the other shortcoming really is the EPA has not done anything. So there's that. There's federally, there's no, I mean, there's been no changes at all. Um, some EPA people that I talk to say that's fine because Donald Trump is in office and they would rather not redo regulations like this while he is president. That's what I've been told. Uh, I wonder if you think this would have happened the same way in another community, um, a community that wasn't as poor as Flint, a community that wasn't as overwhelmingly African-American as Flint. My favorite question. Yeah. I mean, of course it wouldn't. Yeah, well... Tell us no, I mean, I really don't think, uh, I think it could have happened in a Benton Harbor. Yep. Could have happened in a Muskegon Heights. Yep. Any of the cities that I saw emergency managers take, I, I think it, the same thing could have happened in any, in any of those cities. Because when you are allowed to usurp power in that way um, and really be in control of everything, um, and your bottom line is the money, that, and that's, that's, that is the, the point. It's to avoid, it is state bankruptcy. It's state rece receivership. You know, you don't have a judge there that's kind of doing this balance of, okay, well, these creditors get this and these this interest over here, well, you guys got to fight that out and, you know, behind the scenes and kind of hash this stuff out. If you have an emergency manager calling the shots, they're state appointed and they answer to the governor. It it's definitely creates a situation where, um, all kinds of things can be, I mean, in Muskegon Heights, they got away with having uncertified teachers for like a year before anybody caught on to it. Um, and then they got all kinds of fines, but like in the meantime, those kids don't get that year back or whatever. You know what I'm saying? It's just, there's a lot of things that are overlooked in those situations. Okay. Lindsay Smith, thanks for being Lindsay Smith is Michigan Radio's investigative reporter. She won national awards for her documentary exploring the events that brought about Flint's water crisis. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll hear from an attorney and a researcher who fought to help the people of Flint find justice. We recognize that in Flint and other cities, there's a real uncertainty actually about which homes have lead pipes. And, and the fact that that's so uncertain, even at the peak of a crisis, should be a bit startling. Right now, citizens are the last line of defense. Thankfully, these laws were drafted with you know, many layers of protection in mind, and so citizens can step in and say, hey, you are not protecting my drinking water. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown.
I'm your host, Stephen Henderson.